Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for tuning in, joining us uh, online as we begin uh, this new sermon series entitled Living as Kingdom People, looking through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That's what we're going to be doing, basically on the run-up until, uh, until Christmas. I'm excited for this series. I think it's an important series for us uh, as a church as we think about the, the culture of the kingdom and where it is that we as individuals and as a body need to uh, need to grow and press into and uh, and cultivate in our in our life together i think it's going to be important for us uh, personally on a number of levels particularly as we get into uh, to some of the passages that, that really speak to uh, our anxieties in the world i think pastorally it's really uh, important uh, sermon series uh, and season for us and so i'm excited uh, to be able to open up God's Word uh, with you this morning, even though we are uh, distanced uh, from, from one another. Uh, why don't I pray, and then we're going to, uh, to look at the Beatitudes uh, together. Let me pray. Uh, our Father, we do uh, ask that you would be with us now, even while we are not, uh, by and large, with one another. We thank you that you are at hand, that you are near uh, to each one of us by your spirit and would that spirit be at work uh, in us now uh, not just informing our minds but enthusing our hearts and changing our wills so that we might follow you we pray these things in jesus name amen so everyone who's watching this uh, this morning comes uh, from a particular culture, don't you? You come with a set of, uh, of presumptions, a set of values that you have grown up in, that you've imbibed from uh, the, the culture in which you uh, live or lived. Uh, many of us either come from European culture or uh, an American culture or South African cultural background, and those have particular uh, sets of norms and values. That's where culture shock comes from, right? When when you enter into a different culture and it's there's different values, different norms, different done things and different taboos. Some of you have, uh, have grown up actually between two worlds. Uh, either you've spent basically half your life in one place and half your life in another, or your parents came from one culture and uh, and yet you live in a different one and so your home life and your life outside of home uh, always felt kind of slightly different maybe you spoke a different language at home to the one that you spoke at at school we all have uh, a culture some of us have had the privilege of uh, of growing up and imbibing uh, irish culture uh, we know uh, the terror of irish mammies rattling the drawer that has the wooden spoon in it uh, heaven forbid that you would leave the immersion on. Uh, we live in a uh, in a culture that is complex. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We don't really like people who take themselves too seriously. Uh, and yet we won't be behind the door normally and in, uh, in pointing out that you're uh, an Egypt or a Muppa. Uh, but in saying all of that, it's all uh, <laughs> very lighthearted. Culture is unavoidable. And where does it come from? How do we understand culture? Well, did you know that it's not an accident that the word culture has uh, at the start of it, the word cult, uh, that they are linked to this, uh, this idea of, uh, of beliefs, uh, religion, values, 
uh, from the word cult is, is there in this idea of culture. And the way to think about culture uh, is this, that culture is your belief system externalized. It's your religion put on display. It's what you value on your sleeve. That's what culture is. Human beings are culture making, culture imbibing people because we have values, beliefs, we're hardwired for, for worship. And culture is simply the external expression uh, of that. Christians, those of us who are following Jesus, believe and trust in him, uh, have beliefs about who God is, what he has done for us in Jesus, beliefs about who I am as a person, my place in the world, what the end of all things looks like. And those convictions, those beliefs give rise to a kingdom culture, a way of living, speaking, thinking, acting that is shaped by the gospel, by that belief system. It is a culture that is common in some way to everyone who is part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is his, is his expounding of kingdom culture, what it means to live as kingdom people. And one of the things that we'll see as we go through the series is that kingdom culture regardless of where you live, regardless of where you're tuning in from, kingdom culture will always have points of connection with the, uh, with the culture of the world, the culture of the country that you live in, but it will also have uh, elements of tension. There will always be places where kingdom culture conflicts with the culture of the world. And so how do we live distinctively in that? That's why Peter would say that we are uh, exiles, aliens, that this Irish culture that we live in is not our home if we are the follower of Jesus. We live in a, a country with particular val values and, uh, and yet our kingdom culture, while affirming some of them transcends or even conflicts others. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus describing what it's like to be part of the kingdom, what the kingdom values, what the kingdom esteems, what it's like to follow him. That's why it's such an important series for us. And the gateway to that series is the passage uh, that Fiona read for us. It's the Beatitudes. Familiar, I'm sure, to, to many uh, you might, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, we love all of those. But what do they mean? What do they tell us about kingdom culture? I would, uh, I would suggest that you that you grab a a pen, piece of paper, or even the notes uh, on your phone, because uh, this morning, uh, wait for it. Uh, we're going to make four brief observations. I promise they will be brief. Brief observations about the, uh, the Beatitudes, and then we're going to look at the eight Beatitudes in turn, okay? Uh, so how many so how many points are there? There are 12 points. That's why fresh caffeine is being provided here in the study. Four brief observations about the Beatitudes as a whole, because we want to understand how it is that they all kind of hang together, okay? Number one is this is this question of what does Jesus mean by blessed or blessed? 
we see it, it starts, each of the Beatitudes starts by blessed are. What does it mean when Jesus says blessed? Well, it was, it's interesting because it can just mean happy. Uh, happy is the, or happy are the poor in spirit. But actually in the Bible, the word blessed has a, uh, has a slightly deeper connotation. And I think it's important for us to grasp because the, the idea behind the word blessed carries with it the sense of the person that God approves of, the, the person who is approved of by God or the characteristics that are approved of by God. So you could read it as, God approves of the poor in spirit. God approves of those who mourn. And of course, those things could certainly make you happy, or, and it is happy to be approved of by God. But Jesus is saying that the person who embodies these things is the kind of person who receives divine approval. It raises for us the question of whose approval do we naturally seek? If Jesus is saying, here's the kind of life that God approves of, how do you interact with that? Is God's approval something that you are seeking? Or actually does somebody else's approval count more? Whose approval do you want? Whose approval do you seek? Who's well done are you looking for? Who do you want to think well of you? Is it God or is it someone else? Who do you want to love you? Is it God or is it someone else? The second uh, broad observation that we would make is as you look through these uh, these beatitudes as you look through the list of it what it points us to is our need of grace you see the problem with saying that god approves of those who are poor in spirit or meek or pure in heart or merciful is that with just a fragment of self-awareness you realize that actually you don't live up to that standard that actually you don't live a life that is completely pure in heart. You don't live a life, I don't live a life that is completely meek, gentle. And so what the Beatitudes point us to is to our need of grace. These are grace given desires and grace fulfilled desires. We need God's undeserved kindness in order to think and act and feel in a way that he approves of. Jesus in the Beatitudes is not setting you a benchmark to attain under your own strength. It's not that Jesus is saying, be more merciful and God will approve of you. Be more meek and God will, will accept you. No, no, he's showing you the culture of the kingdom. He's showing you 
what we need grace in order to embody. It is only by grace that we can be pure in heart. It's only by grace that we can be meek, gentle. It's only by grace that we can hunger and thirst for, for righteousness. None of us perfectly embodies any of these things. God gives us his kingdom desires. He does so by his grace. We need his grace. Otherwise, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, it's just going to become such a heavy load for us to carry. If you go away from today thinking, I need to be more meek. Lord, give me the grace to be more gentle in my interactions. Give me the grace to be pure in heart. The third uh, observation is that in each of the Beatitudes, the the reward is not arbitrary. The reward flows from the condition at the start. And so you see that kind of uh, obvious, you know, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what's the, what's the reward? What's the consequence? It's that they will be filled. You hunger and are filled. You're merciful and you receive mercy. And those are an indicator to us that because those are consequential, clearly consequential from the condition, that's an indicator to the reader that the others that don't seem like they have a completely obvious connection, like blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God that actually there is a connection there to be teased out. And that's what we're going to do. So that's the third observation. The the rewards are not arbitrary. They flow from the condition. With me thus far? Everybody nodding? Good. Fourth. Fourth broad observation. Two of the Beatitudes, the Beatitude in verse 3, that's the first one, and the Beatitude in verse 10, which is the... It's the last of the Beatitudes proper. I think verse 11 starts to get us into into another section. So verse 3 and verse 10 have, you may have noticed in the reading, have the same reward. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and those who are poor in spirit. When something in the Bible is, is repeated like this, it forms like brackets. It's called an an inclusion. And what that means for us is that the promises encompass all of the Beatitudes. What that means is for us is it's not the case of I'll work on one of these. Or you think you get to heaven on the last day and Jesus says, right, uh, meek over here. Uh, poor in spirit, yeah, uh, if you could just, if you just say at the back, that'd be great. Uh, no, it's not like that. It's not like he's going to divide out, you know, the peacemakers are over here, uh, the hungers and thirsts for ice, they're over at the, at the, at the buffet being filled. No, no, that's not how it works. The inclusion points us to the idea that we are to embody all of these things, that this is the kingdom culture. That's why we're talking about it, because In both of those, it talks about for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is what permeates all of these Beatitudes. They are the characteristics of the person who wishes to be part of the culture of the kingdom. You want to know what it is to follow Jesus more closely, what it is to live as a 
as a kingdom person, as a kingdom church. It's to embody and seek to embody all of these characteristics. Do you see? Those are the four brief observations. That is, those who are approved by God, that points us to our need of grace, that they are not arbitrary, but arbitrary rewards, but flow from the condition, and that they are part of the entire culture of the kingdom, as indicated by the inclusion in verse 3 and verse 10. So let's have a look at each of them uh, quickly in turn. The first is there in, uh, in verse 3. Oh, you might even, uh, you might... Um, look at verse 2 and wonder, well, why does Matthew write, and he opened his mouth and taught them, like, what else did he open? What were the other options? Um, that is a, that's a common way of, uh, of denoting a rabbi teaching, that they opened their mouth and spoke. Uh, so we have, we have Jesus, the, the, the rabbi par excellence, the, the perfect teacher, opening his mouth and telling us about the kingdom of God. And the first thing that we read is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you notice, or perhaps you have met those people who are quite clearly uh, falsely humble, yeah, they, uh, they are just wonderful at at some sort of sport or uh, extremely intelligent. And uh, they might say things, oh, well, uh, I, just put, I just put all of my first place ribbons in, um, in the bottom drawer. Uh, yeah, all of my degrees, I couldn't, I couldn't even tell you where the certificates are. You know, the sorts of, the sorts of people are kind of falsely humble. Is that what Jesus is talking about? No. The poor in spirit are simply those who recognize their need, particularly their spiritual need. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their need of God. They are those who look within themselves and realize that they have no spiritual health, no spiritual strength of their own, and so need to cast themselves on the mercy of Jesus. This cuts against our culture, the culture of the West, the culture that we live in, that says, you know, you can be whatever you want. You're, you're, you're magnificent and wonderful and you make your own luck and create your own, you know, your own destiny your own identity that encourages and challenges you to be independent of anybody else. Jesus says, no, they, the life that, God's that God approves of is the one who recognizes his need of him and throws himself on his mercy. He receives mercy swiftly, fully, readily. what is the reward for those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy? They receive the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says all of heaven is theirs. You think of uh, the incident in Luke's gospel, where Jesus tells the story of 
uh, the parable of the Pharisee going to the temple and the the tax collector going to the temple. Tax collector is just 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 a scumbag guy, just hated by people. And the the Pharisee stands with puffed out chest and says, "Oh Lord, I thank you that I am uh, not like this sinful this sinful tax collector." And the tax collector cannot even come close to the place of prayer. He stands far off and he beats his breast and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What is Jesus' question? Jesus' question to the crowd is, who is it that went away justified? That is, approved of by God. It was the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Second, Second beatitude is there in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. All of us have faced or will face grief in our life. Griefs of various sorts and kinds and intensities. And the gospel surely does promise comfort for those who grieve. But that's not what is in view here. There's something much more permanent, much deeper here. Think back, if you would, or allow me to tell you about a incident in the Bible, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet, and while he was ministering in the temple, he glimpses a vision of God on his throne. He sees uh, the the train of his robe, he sees the the angels, the, the seraphim, there crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what is Isaiah's response? Isaiah mourns. (laughs) Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. He is aware not only of his sin, but of the sins of his people. Or you might again go to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 5. Such a remarkable incident where uh, the disciples are out fishing, and they have caught nothing all night and jesus arriving at dawn tells them to put out for a catch and peter says at master we've caught nothing all night but at your word we will let down for a catch and they and the boat is overwhelmed with with fish and other boats have to have to come and help them and peter's response to jesus is so telling jesus response to jesus is not well great fish Let's go to the market. It's, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That's what it is to mourn. Mourning mourning is a kind of God-given realism. It's a God-given realism about who we are without God what our world is like without God. It's not about being morose. There are plenty of miserable Christians, right? 
But the world, the culture of the world is to be frivolous and cheap, to entertain ourselves rather than looking at suffering, uh, to indulge in what you might call gallows humor, kind of dark humor at, at, at death and at suffering. And uh, I can be guilty of that too. How many of you watching this use laughter as a defense mechanism, use joking as a defense mechanism because you don't want to dwell on, encounter some of the brokenness in, in your life, in your family, in the world. To be one who mourns is one who has the grace given by God to look at, the, look at those things with a quiet realism, to, to grieve what sin has wrought in the relationships of, with the people that you love, what sin has wrought in our world. And, and in grieving, to cast yourself again on God, because what's the promise of the gospel? What's the promise of, of the kingdom? It's that you will, in the end, be comforted. You will receive comfort. Don't distract yourself all the time. Don't just laugh everything off. Some stuff needs to be wept over. And that's okay. Because the promise of the gospel is that you will receive comfort from the coming king. Third, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This one, in a sense, goes with poverty of spirit. If poverty of spirit is, a, is an internal reality, that internal acknowledgement of, uh, of one's need, of one's spiritual bankruptcy, then meekness is the, uh, is the relational outworking of that. Meekness is, is how you relate to people around you, how you relate to the, to the world. Let me be clear, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. It is not weakness or a character flaw in order to be meek. In fact, meekness requires great strength of character. It requires great, great strength of character, particularly in a world that doesn't value meekness. In a world that says, take what you can get. You ever watch The Apprentice, either in the US or on, uh, or on BBC One? They are not meek people. They're, they would step over your, they'd step over your dead body in order to advance themselves. The meek person is not like that. The meek person is not pushy. The meek person does not retaliate. The, the meek person doesn't get sucked in in one-upmanship. The meek person can have great intellect. The meek person can have great physical strength and yet be gentle. We need, don't we, more meekness in the world? Do we need more people to embody what it means to be meek? 
to have strength and to keep that strength sheathed under control to use it in the defense of others and not in the advancement of our own agendas. We need more meekness in the world. You see, meekness would treat others with a little bit more compassion, with a little bit more forgiveness. Think of our world where you can be eviscerated with a tweet that your uh, past history on social media can be trolled through and one ill-informed, unwise comment brought up and your career ended, maybe hounded. More meekness would stop that. Meekness wouldn't look at figures in our history, figures in politics with loathing but with a bit of humility. Meekness would say, I want to be treated with the same level of understanding and humility by people in the future as they look at what I did and my life. And so I'm going to treat people in the past with a little bit of understanding and nuance and forgiveness. What is the consequence for those who are meek? Well, they shall inherit the earth. Hubris and pride, they will always fail. They will always come to naught. Those who seek to gain more and more and more, it'll become like sand slipping through their fingers and the meek will be given it all. Fourth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What is the righteousness that's in view here? What does Jesus mean by the word righteousness? So that's going to help us understand what this beatitude means. Is it, his first option, is it that declaration of innocence that God gives the person who trusts in Jesus. That's what Paul tends to mean by righteousness. When somebody becomes a Christian, they are declared righteous, they're declared innocent. Not only that, they're declared perfect, that they've perfectly obeyed because of their trust in Jesus. Is it uh, an internal righteousness? A a pursuit of moral virtue? Or is it uh, that you're uh, going to hunger and thirst for justice issues? Well, I think the answer to what Jesus means by righteousness is yes. That in a sense, the word in, in this context embodies all of those ideas. That it's righteousness in respect to God, that's righteousness internally, and righteousness in respect to, to others and to injustices. The way that you might think about it, the way that it might be summarized, is that to hunger for righteousness is to yearn for the will of God to be done in every sphere of existence. 
What is it that Jesus teaches his disciples when they ask to be taught how to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it is to yearn for righteousness, to pray that, that God's will would be done in every sphere of existence and to align ourselves with that. Because God is, he is the source, he is the very definition, and he is the guarantor of goodness, of righteousness, of true virtue. To hunger and thirst for those things is to hunger and thirst ultimately for him. And the result? Satisfaction. Satisfaction. That you will be filled. Your hunger on that last day will be satiated. Satiated. <laughs> and so one way that you might think about it is in your hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Are you coming with are you coming with a little tiny ramekin dish of hunger for God? That, that'll do me. I'll get by with that. Or are you coming with a, with, with a platter and saying, satisfy the longings of my heart. Overwhelm me with your goodness. Fifth. There in verse 7, blessed, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This one's hard because it asks some questions of us. This beatitude looks you straight in the eye and says, do you hold a grudge? It looks at you and you asks, and it asks, do you stew over injustices? Do you stew over things that people have done or said? Do you profess to follow Jesus and yet say, I will never forgive him. I will never forgive her. There is no doubt that forgiveness can be a brutal business because it is an absorbing of hurt. We know that it's a brutal business because we know that it drove the Lord Jesus to the cross. It cost him his life. And so I'm not belittling the things that have befallen you. And yet this beatitude really does drive home the idea of if we claim to follow Jesus and we refuse to press into forgiveness, to even desire forgiveness, Have we understood what it means to be forgiven ourselves? The merciful person turns from both pride and bitterness 
and he or she clings to the mercy of God. The mercy of God who is just. He'll see justice done. That's what we saw in the, in the previous beatitude. His righteousness will, uh, will flow like streams. And so we entrust ourselves to him. And as a consequence, we receive mercy. Sixth, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do we know that the culture of the kingdom is all of grace? Well, uh, if you haven't realized it yet, it's probably because of this one. Because none of us, if we are honest, are pure in heart. That is, uh, pure at the very operational core of our being. In our thoughts, in our will, in our actions, in our speech, in our desires. We're not, we're not pure in heart. We're not completely flawless. We might be uh, moving towards greater and greater virtue, and I pray that, that you are. But we need the grace of God in order to have a heart transformation, to be counted as those who are pure in heart. To be pure in heart is to be pure at the very core of your being. That is, to share the character of God. Not in self-expression, but God-expression. Expressing what his priorities are, his characteristics. And the promise here is that we will see God. How are we to understand this? Well, the simplest way to think about it is this. Becoming like God is a prerequisite for seeing him. We must become pure in heart as he is if we are to behold his wonderful face. Thank God that it is all of his grace and that his grace is readily available to you. We seek purity of heart now. We press into it now. We ask for the, the grace to have it wrought in our lives now. So that when we get to heaven, the culture shock of being in heaven will be lessened. We cultivate it now in our community, in our life together. So that the culture shock, when we were all together in the new heavens and the new earth, is reduced. Jesus is inviting you to practice for heaven. Seventh, penultimate one. Then we have a, a slurp. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're there in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, this is an unusual word, this word peacemaker, because it actually doesn't occur anywhere else. And it's also unusual because you might be tempted to think of a peacekeeper. You know, someone who isn't quarrelsome. So, uh, someone who doesn't get into fights, they are a peacemaker. But no, to be a peacemaker, Sorry, they're a peacemaker. To be a peace, 
To be a peacemaker, sorry, is something different. Ask yourself, in a dispute or in an argument, do you tend to raise or lower the temperature? If you are in the middle, if you're the third party between two who are in an argument or disputing, do you seek to calm things down? Do you lower the temperature? That's a skill. Jesus says that God approves of those who do that sort of thing, who seek to reconcile warring factions, who don't escalate situations. It is no wonder that these people are called sons of God. That is, that they share something of the characteristics of God. That's what it means to be a son. Because to bring two sides together, to resolve a conflict is a godlike thing to do. That is what he has done through his son. That is what he has done in the gospel. Jesus is the peacemaker, the one who makes peace between God and man. Blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called sons of God. Finally. There in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To live as a kingdom people, to live out some of these cultural distinctives, will bring resentment, will bring a degree of persecution. This is not general suffering. This is suffering for being a kingdom citizen, persecuted for righteousness sake. And if we live externalizing, because that's what culture is, externalizing some of the values that we have as Christians, people will think us weird. People will sneer. People will think that you are weak when you try to embody meekness. You need to settle in your heart that this is an inevitability as you seek to follow Jesus, that's just going to happen. Jesus has warned you. He warns you all the way through the Gospels. You count the cost. You take up the cross and you follow him. You will face hardship for aligning yourself with Jesus. To align yourself with Jesus is to acknowledge your need of him, to recognize and confess your own spiritual poverty, and so it is no surprise that both this beatitude and the one on spiritual poverty receive the same reward. To those who suffer loss for the sake of the kingdom, for those who are overlooked for a promotion, whose friends get up and walk out of the room, 
for those across the world who lose home or job, livelihood or life, the promise is sure. They will receive all of heaven. That is their reward. Each of these things that we have gone through point us to the Lord Jesus. They point us either to our need of him or as the one who perfectly embodies things like meekness, gentleness, mercy, the one who makes peace, the one who is pure in heart. These Beatitudes drive us to him. That's why they're a gateway to the whole sermon series. These next weeks, eight, nine weeks that we have together, I hope that the Beatitudes have, have encouraged you and compelled you that on a Sunday morning, you're going to come, spiritually speaking, to sit at Jesus' feet and to say to him, you who embody these things, you who who meet my needs in terms of my spiritual poverty. Teach me what it is to follow you. Do you want to do that with us these weeks? Which of these things, which of these eight, while they are all things that we all need to work on, which of these strikes you the most? Is it spiritual dependency? Is it mourning, having that God-given realism about the world that you live in, about you and your need of him, about the relationships that you are in? Is it meekness? Is it that you don't, that you lack gentility? Is it a hunger for righteousness? Is it mercifulness? To have that disposition of forgiveness? Is it purity of heart? Is it peaceableness, that you would be a peacemaker in your workplace as people sneer and backbite and bitch about one another? Which strikes you? Which is the Holy Spirit impressing upon you now? Which do you need to ask for grace to lean into and to learn from Jesus from? Or about whatever it is what I want us to do is to press into these kingdom characteristics together and that by the overwhelming and readily available grace of God that he might form this sort of cultural identity in our church in our church family wouldn't that be glorious? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that say something to the world about who we are and the kind of values that we have? Let's press into these things together by the grace of God and for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you 
meet us as we reflect upon these things. Help us to know our need of you. Help us to rightly mourn, to be meek, to hunger for righteousness, to extend and to seek mercy, to be pure at the very core of our being and to make peace. Thank you that you love us and that you do not just dangle these things in front of us as an impossible weight to bear, but that through Jesus you make it possible to live to live these cultural values, to embody them. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, everyone. Mm -hmm.